today is an exciting day. Every Sunday is an exciting day. It's a privilege every week to stand up here, whether we're in the book of Galatians and 2 John and 3 John, a Christmas sermon, whatever it is, and stand behind this book and open God's Word and preach it and teach it. I'm thankful for all of the positive feedback um, that you give to me um, about how you're learning from God's Word. And, and I try to continue to encourage each of us, uh, this isn't about sermons, this is about us together learning from God's Word. I get to learn from God's Word all week, every week, as I'm digging in and studying and growing and learning. And then God's given me the task of presenting that to each of you, uh, so not that you would be impressed by a sermon, but that you would be impressed by God and His Word, and impressed in such a way that you want to dig in deeper for yourself. That's always the goal for preaching. That's always the hope, is that you would walk out of here knowing God a little bit better and having a little bit more of a desire to dig into his word on your own. Um, if we're accomplishing that as a church, we're being successful as a church. If we're not, then we're not. So hopefully, whatever the sermon series is, um, it's helping you draw closer to God through his word. We're going to start a new series today. I'm super excited about it. Before I tell you about the series itself, let me just say a few things and make some comments about why uh, this series. I believe that we live in a culture right now um, that is in mass confusion and mass chaos on some of the foundational questions of life. Questions like, who am I? And why am I here? And where am I going? And why does life matter? Questions about existence. Questions about purpose. Questions about identity. Questions about gender. Questions about marriage. Questions about work. Questions about pain and suffering. The existence of God. All of these types of things are foundational questions that we all have. And I see and I believe that some of the chaos, most of the chaos and confusion that we see in the world, whether it's confusion around gender issues or role issues or confusion around the place of men and women in society and in church, confusion around government issues, confusion around purpose. It comes because people are, are floundering in culture, chasing after answers to these questions, not looking in the place where these answers are really given. We would say as Christians that the answers to all of life's foundational questions are found in the Bible, right? More fundamentally, over the next few weeks, what I want to suggest to you is that the, the answers to life's most foundational questions can all be found in the first three chapters of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1 through 3, God lays out the foundational answers to foundational questions of existence and purpose and meaning and gender and marriage and work and all of the big questions that we ask in life. Some of you have started your read through the Bible in a year, and I want to tell you something. You can stop three quarters of the way through the first day and have the answers to life's biggest questions. Some of you are really pumped about that right now. You're like, good, because that's as far as I've gotten. And we're like eight days in, right? Genesis 1 through 3 has the answers to those foundational questions. And that's why over hopefully around the next 10 weeks, this is my goal, we're going to look at this series called Foundations, Studies in Genesis chapter 1 through 3. And the idea is that, again, this is a series of roughly 10 sermons. I'm going to tell you what they are in just a minute. Um, they're bound to change as I dig in and study, but roughly 10 sermons where we're going to explore Genesis 1 through 3 and some of the foundational answers and biblical answers to life's biggest questions. Now, if you've been around here any length of time at all, you know that when we study through a book of the Bible, we usually go verse by verse, word by word, and go through. This is going to be a little bit different than that. It's going to be part expositional, 
part theological and a little bit philosophical. We're going to kind of put all of those things together. We're going to start with a text of scripture, just like we will today, and kind of pull out some of the big answers and principles surrounding 10 different issues that are specifically addressed in Genesis 1 through 3. So, like, if you're not a Christian and you're here today, we're glad you're here. I want to welcome you. Maybe somebody dragged you to church, or maybe you thought you'd just come to check out church, or you were driving by and there were lots of cars in the parking lot, and you thought, well, I need to be around other people today, so I'll show up. This is a great time to be here because we're going to talk about some questions that you've probably had. I'm not going to impose my ideology on you, but I am going to expose God's word over the next 10 weeks and what God's word has to say about some of these deep issues that people are asking, and then you can determine what you do with that. If you're a Christian and you're here today, as many, maybe probably most of us are Christians here today, hopefully these next 10 weeks strengthen the foundation of your faith. When somebody comes to you and asks you a foundational question about life or starts to wax eloquent on their personal ideology and philosophy, you'll have something to stand on. So here's where we're going to go over the next 10 weeks, and I shudder to do this because it's not going to probably quite stay that way. But I think that in the first three chapters of Genesis, we can at least look at these things. Today we're going to talk about the foundation of everything. God is the foundation of everything. Four words. The sermon has four words of text today. It's going to take an hour and 15 minutes for me to talk about the first four words of the Bible. The foundation of life next week. The foundation of identity. The foundation of gender. Does anyone think that could get a little controversial? Right? There will either be nobody here or lots of extra people here. If the word gets out, there may be people with signs picketing out front. But we need to hear God's word on gender. The foundation of purpose, like why am I here? Like what's, what actually gives meaning to life? It's found right there in Genesis. The foundation of rest and work, you know, work-life balance. People talk about that all the time now, like let's have work-life balance. Did you know Genesis chapters 1 and 2 give us work-life balance? The foundation of marriage. Marriage is fundamentally, foundationally under attack today. We need to hear what God's word has to say about marriage. And then brokenness. We're all experiencing levels of brokenness. Where did it come from? Why? And what do we do about it? And then finally, the foundation of, of salvation at Genesis chapter 3, 15, the first glimpse in the Bible of the salvation that would be offered in Jesus Christ. And that's where we're going to go over the next 10 weeks. And I hope that, again, if you're not a Christian, that it gives you some things to think about. If you are a Christian, it strengthens your faith and helps you to dig in um, and, and grow and build your foundation as well. So this morning... The foundation of everything, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1a. Now, if you have your Bibles, I want you to open them. You're like, it's only four words. I want you to open them because, again, this is the foundation. God's word is the foundation of everything that I say up here. So I want you to look at those words just as I read them. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the first four words. In the beginning, God. Let's say it together. I think all the translations say it just about the same. Ready? On the count of three. One, two, three. In the beginning, God. What you believe about God is the most important thing in your entire life. What you believe about God is the most important thing in your entire life because it lays the foundation for something called your worldview. Everyone believes something. Everyone believes something about God. What you believe about God is the most important thing in your life because it sets the tone and forms the foundation for your worldview. 
some people call themselves atheists. They believe something about God. They believe that there's no such thing as God, that God doesn't exist. And whether that's for intellectual reasons or more often for moral reasons, we don't want accountability, then I become an atheist. And I believe there's no such thing as God. But an atheist has a belief in God. An agnostic is another worldview. And an agnostic person believes, I can't really know anything about God. I, I can't know that I know about God. Did you know an agnostic believes something about God? There are people who are called Unitarians or, or Deists. And Deists, many of the founding fathers, by the way, were Deists, that they believed that there was something out there called God. But he was very impersonal and, and very just like this kind of spirit or force that was out there and, and didn't have any personal relationship with mankind. And different iterations of Deism are actually becoming very popular in general spirituality today, but they don't lead you to the gospel of Jesus, which we just unpacked in Galatians, if you remember. But even deists have a belief system about God. We would call ourselves theists, or more precisely, monotheists, monotheistic trinitarians, that's probably most of you here, that we believe that there's one God existing in three persons. We have a belief in something about God. But your belief in God, whether you're an atheist, an agnostic, a deist, a theist, a monotheist, a monotheistic trinitarian, Whatever it is, like, drives your worldview. You think about how an atheistic person thinks about pain and suffering. Think about how someone who's an agnostic thinks about the purpose of their life, right? The way that we think about God has much to do with how we view our world and act in our world. Uh, this morning, a good friend of mine, Mr. Jim Greenfield, who didn't know I was even preaching in this, Jim's here, he sent me a text this morning and had this quote by G.K. Chesterton, and I think it's probably from God that God wanted you to hear this, because he had no idea when he sent it. When people choose not to believe in God, they do not hear thereafter believe in nothing. They then become capable of believing anything, right? And this G.K. Chesterton, he was a very smart man and a philosopher. But as you think about that, like we all believe something about existence, about eternity, about life, about death, about purpose, about all of those different things that are wrapped up in those fundamental questions. And to say, well, I don't believe in God, doesn't mean I just get to say, I don't believe in God, I believe in nothing. Right? No, you then just become capable of believing in anything that you want to believe in. The Bible starts with God. The Bible starts with presuming God. In the beginning, God. Because it's the foundation of everything. That belief about God organizes your purpose in life. It organizes your priorities, the things that you prioritize and chase after. What you believe about God significantly impacts the pursuits and the things that you chase after for each and every one of us. So as we think about, and as we get started with the first four words of the Bible, we have to ask ourselves, why does the Bible start with God? The Bible doesn't start with you. The Bible doesn't start with me. Do you know why that is? It's not about our story. We're just two-bit or one-bit role actors in God's grand story. As opposed to a worldview that says, I'm the center of the world. I am God. I get to make my own decisions. Like the world revolves around me. It changes everything when we believe that there is one God and I am not him, right? 
and it affects everything that we do. And so the foundation of everything, before we talk about life or gender or roles or we talk about purpose or we dig into any of those other things, we want to get squared away on the foundation of everything, who is God. And I'll answer three questions this morning in the time that we have together. The first one is going to be a little bit more um, uh, mental and, and, and thought-provoking. Does God exist? We'll talk about that for a minute. Th- does God exist? Maybe you've always just kind of believed that God exists, and you're not sure why. But does God exist? And then number two, then if God does exist, what is God like? like we need to know something about what God is like. And then number three, why does that matter? That's what we're going to dig in on, and it's going to organize our time this morning. So the first question, does God exist? If I took a poll in this room, it would probably come back about 98% yes, right? If I went out into our culture and asked, the numbers would change rather significantly, and over the course of even the last 30 to 50 years, those numbers have changed quite a bit. There's a couple different ways of, of coming around this question of does God exist, actually. And I think that both of the directions are important for us to think about. Uh, I won't overemphasize either of them. And, and by the way, we're going to cover like, you know, a seminary course worth of stuff in one day today. Uh, and this is just like flyover so that we have things in our minds to think about. But sometimes when people have tried to answer that question, does God exist, they've come at it from like a, a philosophical or a rational standpoint. As a matter of fact, some of you are familiar with what are called um, the, the rational or the classical arguments for the existence of God. Maybe you've heard that or read some of that that's, that philosophers have worked through. Christian and non-Christian, by the way, have worked through to say, like, this is important for people to answer these questions. And they come up with what's called the ontological argument for the existence of God, the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, and the moral argument. Yeah, those, right? Everybody's like, huh? Wait, what? I was expecting some solid, strong amens on those. The, and, and the reason like, we put those names out there is here's, here's the deal. My kids go to a school, and some of your kids go to a school, and some have gone to universities where they're going to say, well, like, maybe God exists, but we're not really sure. Or they're going to say, people that believe God exists are idiots, right? Science has proven that God doesn't exist, and God can't exist and doesn't exist. The reason I use big words to help you to, to say those things is very smart people who aren't even Christians have argued for the existence of God. Christians aren't the only people that argue for the existence of God. But I want you to know that it's not just a silly, irrational argument, that there are real arguments for the existence of God. And so, like, those different arguments, if you're interested in looking them up, you start to read and you start to realize, wow, like, those are really important, right? The ontological argument, because we exist and we can perceive of a perfect God that somehow, like, some level of God, some being must exist that's perfect. And this is a truncated uh, explanation of each of these, but at least gives you an idea. The cosmological argument says as we look around at the cosmos, as we look around at all that has been created, you've got to see this was created by some sort of design. And following that, the teleological argument, the argument for intelligent design. When I see an intelligent design, it begs intelligent designer, right? The watch and the watchmaker illustration, if you've heard it. And the moral argument to say, like, where did right and wrong even come from? Why do we even have a concept of right and wrong and good and bad? Like morality, all of those things are are arguments for the existence of God of some sort. But here's what's interesting in our culture, especially today, that those are called the rational arguments for for the existence of God. Raise your hand if you would say, we live in a really rational society today. 
I don't see that hand, right? And unfortunately, like argument, like rational argumentation and absolute truth and some of those things are like going out the window and with them are going the weight of some of those like rational arguments for the existence of God. I still think that those arguments are very important because it can strengthen our faith as believers and it can be a witness to other people. But one of the things that is sad is that as rational thinking goes out the window, rational arguments go out the window. We need to have an idea that like there, people have actually thought about the existence of God and came to solid conclusions. But there's another way to come at that question, does God exist? You've got the rational, classical, but then you have the, the faith way, right? You have the way of faith, the path of faith, and saying, does God exist? And here's where that question uh, kind of comes into play. I tell people that everyone places their faith in something. Everyone has faith. An agnostic has faith. An atheist has faith. A, a pluralist, someone who believes that all paths lead to God. That's kind of the popular one right now, right? Just relativism and pluralism and all paths lead to God because that makes me feel really good. Everybody places their faith in something and as a matter of fact, why does the Bible assume the existence of God? Why doesn't it start with the five rational proofs for the existence of God? Why doesn't the Bible start by arguing for God? Because it doesn't need to. Romans 1 tells us that everything that needs to be known about God has been made known so that you can know that God does exist and pursue Him. Psalm 14.1 says the fool has said in his heart there is no God. The Bible assumes the existence of God and assumes that those who don't believe and can't see it are fools in the true sense of the term. Because what has, needs to be known about God has been revealed. God has revealed himself. God is knowable. He's done that through what theologians call general revelation through nature, through looking at life, through observations, through, through, through if you're a parent and you, you've seen your child being born. Like those kinds of things say, like it argues for the existence of God. God has also made his, himself known through special revelation, right? In the Old Testament, that was the prophets. In the New Testament, that was the apostles. Today, it is his word. Special revelation. God is knowable. And here's the most important part about this question of faith, is that if everyone places their faith in something, I want all of you to know, but I especially want these people, these young people down here to know, that belief in God, and further, Christianity, is a reasoned, rational faith. That it's been well thought out. It's not just blind faith. Because secular culture will attack faith in God and faith in Christ and say, it's just blind faith. As a matter of fact, really smart people have said that, that was just, that's just a crutch. I can't remember if it was Karl Barth, somebody like that, that said that it's the opiate. No, it was uh, Karl Marx said that religion is the opiate of the people. Meaning that people just made up religion and God so that they could, in some way, alleviate their pain. The pain of what life is all about. And I want us to know in answer to that first question, does God exist? There is real, rational, like scientifically provable evidence that God does exist. That, that the Christian faith and, the, and belief in God is defensible. As a matter of fact, I say to our kids all the time, like it actually takes more faith to be an atheist. 
Like if you really take what we believe about God and you take all the textual criticism of the Bible and you take the scientific evidence and you take all the different, those different things and thousands of years of history and you put all that stuff together and then you take atheism and where that came from and how it developed as a philosophy and you take uh, naturalistic evolution and all those things and put those together and you look at them and you say, which one of these mindsets takes more faith to believe? It really takes more faith to, to be an atheist than it does to place your faith in God. But again, when I believe in God, then I believe in authority. And then I have to obey that authority. And so it's easier to be an atheist. Does God exist? I would stand here today and say that those first four words of the Bible are foundational because it tells us that God exists. And that's the foundation of everything. The second question that's related to that is this. What is God like? Now, how much time do we have? I didn't bring a timer up here. It's about 1130. What is God like? I've been studying Scripture, like really studying Scripture, since I was in high school. So that was a few years ago. I won't tell you how many. You can guess. 13, 14, 15, no. All right? That was a while ago. But I went to Bible college. I went to seminary. Lots of books. You know what the topic really generally of all that was? God. What is God like? There's no way that you can stand in a pulpit or anywhere and for a half an hour or an hour say, well, this is what God is like. And everybody walks away. He's like, oh, now I know everything that I need to know about God, right? But would he be God if I could do that? Would you really want to serve the God that you could explain in 30 minutes, right? No. But what has been very helpful to me over the years, and this is not what I'm going to give you, is not just like something that I made up, but I've heard it from multiple sources there are four words that I think that we need to know when we, when we talk about what is God like that kind of give us a grasp generally of like what we need to know about God. The first word is that God is great. God is great. H- have you said that prayer before? God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food, right? Like when you were a little kid. We get confused on the word great sometimes. Lauren said it earlier, you know. Man, that communion cup is awesome. Man, that burrito that I had the other day was awesome. Man, that football game was so awesome. The Seahawks' playoff hopes, not awesome, right? We use the word awesome or great for some of the craziest things sometimes. And so then when we start to call God great, we kind of we miss it. But I want you to think about what God's word teaches us about God. Like if the Bible is the story of God, one of the things that it's doing is teaching us about God's greatness. I remember in, in uh, Bible college, uh, a professor, uh, a pastor came from the outside and did one of our chapels. And he just kept saying, God is big. And we started going around campus just making fun of this guy saying it all the time. Because that was like the main point. And he'd like say something and then he'd be like, God is big and so like you know for weeks it just went around campus and people were laughing and making fun but i was going to stand here today and tell you that god is big god is immense the transcendence of god is greater than any greatness god is big and large and in charge we talk about the omnis of god right the omnipotence the omnipresence the omniscience that god is all-knowing God knows everything, knows all of our thoughts, is all-knowing. That God is all-powerful, that there's nothing that God can't do. There's nothing that God is, is, that can overpower God. 
We talk about God being everywhere present at all times. All of the bigness pieces of God. We talk about the holiness of God, right? And again, like, they're called the incommunicable attributes of God. Some of the things that, that God possesses that we don't get to possess, or maybe we possess in tiny amounts, but the holiness of God. You want to talk about God being great? There's the doctrine of the Trinity. Can someone explain that to me? Right? Well, it's like this three-leaf clover. No, it's actually not. Well, it's like ice and water. No, that's a heresy. Well, it's like, uh, no, right? No. All of these things are meant to show us the greatness of God. We need to be confronted with the greatness of God. I'm going to give you three more words to go along with that one. But God is great. I think we're so consumed with little things. We're so consumed with our own longings. We're so consumed with our own little desires. Our own little awesomeness. Right? And we're so consumed with trying to find awesomeness for ourselves that we forget to just look and see how great and how awesome God is. What is God like? God is great. You don't serve a weak God. You don't serve an insufficient God. You don't serve a God that's only in control of a few things about the greatness of God, study God's sovereignty, that God is in control of all things, the good and the evil, and somehow in all of that, he's still completely in control and working it all together for good purposes. God is great. I feel like if, if I could just get a little more of God is great, then a lot of the things that in, happen in my life, the worries and the fears and the frustrations would go away. If I really grasped the greatness of God. Do you know we have a couple of ways to help us understand the greatness of God? Do you know that this book is a story of God's greatness? You read the book of Judges and you're like, whoa, it's evil, always, all the time. That's sickening. I can't even read it to my kids for bedtime, right? It still shows the greatness of God. That God's word, if I pick up God's word and I stop reading it for like a couple of tips for how to make my life better, and I start reading it to see the greatness of God, that's going to transform your uh, annual Bible reading plan, by the way. Just read God's word and look for his greatness. So God is great. He's also glorious. Related to greatness is God is glorious. Glorious means that his greatness is actually a good thing. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of of God, right? That's why I love the graphic that's on the screen behind me, and I wanted to say thank you to Daniel Zumini. He's done the last few of our graphics, and he came up with this one in a short period of time for me. But I love how those two people are standing there staring at this massive sky because the heavens declare the glory of God. And we know that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That to give something glory, we realize its intrinsic worth and its value. That there's only one thing that's worth glory, and that's God. There's only one thing that's really worth our praise, and that's God. You know, there are a couple hundred thousand people, even right now, gathered together around the United States giving glory to something, and it's not God. Right? 
and they're screaming louder than we are, and their hopes are higher than ours are, and their excitement level is greater than ours are, and it all revolves around this little oblong pig skin, right? Think about it, 32 teams playing against each other, packed full stadium, 60, 70,000 people per stadium. And they're giving glory to a bunch of guys on the field, beating each other up and getting paid a lot of money to do it. Look, we know what glory looks like, but there's only one who's worthy of glory and praise, and that's God. Like, if God is great and God is glorious, then we give him praise. What is God like? He is great. He is glorious. There's a third word that's important, and that is that God is good. He is great and he is glorious, but we need to understand that God is good. All the time, God is good. Here are some of the ways that Scripture talks about God. It talks about God as the Father. It talks about God as the husband. It talks about God as a friend. It talks about God as a shepherd. It talks about God as an artist and a potter and a builder. Talks about God as a teacher and a warrior and a ruler and a judge. God as a savior and a deliverer and a redeemer. Those are just a few of the ways that the Bible talks about God. That God is good in each of those roles. Because there's something about each of those roles. You see, the first two, that God is great and that God is glorious, that's when we talk about the transcendence of God. That he is other, that he is greater, that he is bigger when we talk about God being good, we're talking about the imminence, the closeness, the relational aspect of God. The fourth word that's related to that is that God is gracious. God is great and he is good, but he is glorious and he is gracious. And I want you to know that God is constantly giving us what we don't deserve. You think about that? Like God is constantly giving us what we don't deserve. Your kids ever say, I just want what I deserve. Like, do you really, though? Right? Imagine saying that to God. Like, somebody gets mad and they, I just want what I deserve, God. Uh, if I'm around that guy, I'm running. God is gracious in that he's constantly giving us what we don't deserve. There's actually something called common grace. Common grace is where things like scientists and medicine and cars and inventions and just like some of the common things that you have in life every day, like that God has given people grace to know how to do those things. We call that common grace that's experienced by all people. It's just God's goodness and God's graciousness coming out on people. That we get what we don't deserve, and that's a really good thing. But John 3, 16, the most well-recognized verse in the Bible, talks about God's grace in a different way, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Aren't you thankful that God is great? Aren't you thankful that God is glorious? But aren't you thankful that God is good and gracious? That we have a God that is transcendent and imminent. That he is greater than any could imagine. That he's fully in control. But that at the same time, that he is good and that he is gracious. That he is relational. And here's something interesting, by the way. Study the concept of gods from human history. Anthropologists tell us that like all cultures, all known cultures that, that have ever been in existence, that we've seen and studied, have some concept of something higher than ourselves. 
some God consciousness, right? That when they go and they study these different cultures in, in the jungles and in crazy places and, and no outside man has ever been there, that there's some concept, some God consciousness that's there. But when you look at the, the pantheon of gods in ancient Greece and you look at the pantheon of gods in ancient Egypt and you look at the different gods in different places over the course of, of history, this is what sets the God of the Bible apart from all other false gods. You have some gods that are really good, but they're not very great. You have some gods that are very great, but they're not very good. You have a pantheon of gods that they're always trying to do business with people and different things like that. But this sets apart the true God, the God of the Bible, from all other gods. That he is great and he is glorious. He's also good and he's gracious. And I think that that is enough to build a foundation on. In the beginning, God. God's the foundation of everything. So we say, yeah, I'll, I'll place my faith in the fact that God exists. And then I know what God is like. The last question then would be, so what? Like, why does that matter? What difference does that make for life? And as I said before, it does organize our purpose and our priorities and our pursuits. That's for sure. But let me help you think about it maybe a little bit different way. One of the, the foundational questions that the world is asking today is who's in charge? Right? Is the president in charge? Is, I, look, I don't know why you, you laughed, I didn't. You, you're the ones, that's on you. Is, you know, are, is our government in charge? Are our religious leaders in charge? Are my parents in charge? Who's in charge? And at the end of the day, you know what we all want? We want to be in charge ourselves, right? Like, I at least want to be in charge of me. I have a wife and three girls. I'm not in charge of me, right? But at the end of the day, we all want to be in charge of ourselves. And I alluded to this before, but I think, like, why does all of this matter? If I say, yes, there's a God, and I will place my faith in the fact that there is a God, and, and now I'm not even talking about Christianity, right? I'm just talking about believing in God in some way. If I believe in God, and then I believe that he is great and glorious and good and gracious, if I believe in the God of the Bible, then I take it that next step further. You know what that means? There is one God, and I am not him. I don't get to be God of my life. That God gets to be God of my life. It's called authority, right? The foundation of God brings authority to life. It means that there's a standard that I don't get to set, but that I need to be subservient to. And that it means that there's an authority in my life that I need to accept. That means that God gets to tell me what to do and set the agenda for my life and not me. It suddenly matters very much that there's authority. And then there's another word that culture doesn't like, and that's accountability. One of the reasons that relativism is running rampant is because, you know what, if I can't tell you and you can't tell me and nobody gets to set standards for each other, then there's no accountability. You live how you want, I live how I want, we call it all love, and it's great. But what it actually is is anarchy. And I've said that before, that people want freedom, but what they're actually chasing after is autonomy, and autonomy only leads to anarchy. Without the authority of God, without accountability, it's this downward spiral of personal autonomy, which just leads to anarchy. 
You believe what you want. I'll believe what I want. We won't tell each other that we're wrong. We'll just accept everything. And the next thing you know, this thing that 30 years ago would have never been okay is suddenly okay. And this thing that 100 years ago was illegal is now perfectly fine and acceptable. And we're all scratching our heads and don't know which bathroom to go into. Right? It's just like, it matters. Like, it really matters. And most of the time when people become atheists, it's not because they've like really laid it out and put it all down together and been like, can't get behind the God thing. I really rationally believe there's no God. There are some people who are like that. Most of the time when I run into an atheist, it's because Christians have done them dirty, have done something wrong, have been mean and bad and not been very Christ-like to them, or it's they don't want personal accountability. So we answer, does God exist? No. So I can live however I want. But unfortunately, again, that only leads to the downfall of people. And I would say as we walk further and further away from the rational understanding and existence of God, if that's the foundation of everything, when that foundation crumbles, we see what happens. And that's where we're at right now. So we've got to call ourselves and we've got to call other people back to the fundamental foundational belief in God. The last thing I'll say is this, is that the reason that this matters is for a word called awe, A-W-E. The first three letters of the word awesome. That we were created for all. We'll get into this in the next couple of weeks, but that we were created to stand in all. That we were created to chase after all. And to be in all. That's why when there's emptiness and there's pain and those kinds of things, that we run to things to give us freedom from that. And I believe that God created things like things in nature and other things in life to give us all. They, they, we call that horizontal all, all at other things around us. But here's what's happened, is that rather than giving all to God, the creator, when we look at these things, people just chase these things for all. And horizontal all was only ever intended to point us toward vertical all, all of God. When I go to Mount Rainier and I'm like, that's unbelievable, that's amazing. I'm not supposed to worship Mount Rainier. I'm supposed to worship God. When I see my wife and I'm like, I love her so much. God, you're so gracious because this and that like shouldn't have happened. I should be in awe of God. I can be in awe of her too, but I should be in awe of God, right? All of those different kinds of vertical or horizontal things that we go, oh my gosh, that's amazing, should point us to God. We were created for all. If there's no God, if I have no concept of all of God, where am I going to find that all? I'm going to be chasing it in every other way that I possibly can. Power, possessions, all kinds of other things. What do we see our culture doing now? We were created for all. If we don't have God, we're going to run after all kinds of different things. Where you find your all shapes the pursuits in your life. In the beginning, God is not just a cool preface, right? It's not just like those first few words that we read past real quick and we're like, okay, now what? Let's argue about six-day creationism. You stop at in the beginning, God, and then you stand in awe of God because God is the foundation of everything. God's the foundation of your relationships. God's the foundation of your worldview. God's the foundation of the way that you do marriage and parenting and gender God is the foundation of your purpose because he's the foundation of your existence. 
And we'll come back to this every single week. That, that we're, again, we believe in God. But we le- believe in one God in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we believe that God is good. And the greatest showing of His being good is that He gave God the Son, Jesus Christ. James says that even demons believe in God. So if you're an atheist, like, even demons believe in God. Can't you, right, figure that out? Even demons believe in God. But what we believe is in a good God who gave his son to die in our place for our sins so that we could have a relationship with this God. We have a relationship with the God who created everything. As we close, let me just say again, we did this in the last series, but but on the website, I'm putting some follow-up questions on there each week so that you can go in, and whether it's in a small group or by yourself or with your family, dig in a little bit deeper. Some of these things, we're going to cover a lot of material. Other times, it'll be a little bit less. Today's a little bit heavier, but I want you to dig in and think about some of these things a little bit more. And so there's a resource online. If you go online, uh, just on, right on the main page, uh, right under where we have like the sermon recordings and, and all of that, right underneath it, I think it says discussion questions, um, right down below it. You can click on that and there'll be discussion questions for this week. I want you to continue to use those uh, to continue to process what God is doing. God is the foundation of everything. We should stand in awe of God.